We're in end of John 11. Going to do chapter 12 today. That's a big thing, but uh, I want to finish it up because I'm really anxious to do the five chapters, John 13 through 18. Really anxious to do these chapters, the Upper Room Discourse. We'll probably spend a lot of time on them. They're so personable and so uh, overwhelming with the love of Christ and tenderness to His disciples. But before we get there, we have a uh, some transition to go through, some necessary verses we need to look at. Uh, we're going to look at uh, John 11:45. We're going to be starting. Remember, we just finished the seventh sign, which was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And we just finished the fifth I am, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And last week we predominantly looked at the implications and the facts about the resurrection, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And from, from 1145 to 13, we're going to be transitioning. Uh, Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem. It's time for Him to die on the cross, the reason for which He came. And He's going to be coming into Jerusalem He's going to be fulfilling prophecy, and then he's going to be speaking to three different groups of people in these transition in this transition chapter. He's going to be speaking to believers. We're going to notice what he says to the believers. He's going to be speaking to those who 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 are attracted to Jesus superficially, who come to him because of the miracles, and they want to see something outstanding. They want to see something different. They really don't have a faith or trust in him, but it's pretty superficial. Then we're going to look at the rejectors, those who hate Jesus, uh, Judas Iscariot and some of the scribes and Pharisees. And we're going to see Jesus' inner reaction with all three. And all of us uh, can benefit from these, uh, from these verses. So let's look at this. In this transition, Jesus is going to be summing up. Remember the prologue, when we talked about the prologue, it's going to, the prologue is going to give us an, a big overview of what this book is about. Now in chapter 12, Jesus is going to sum up his ministry. He's going to fulfill the prologue. And Jesus is no longer going to speak to the public at large. He's no longer going to have opportunity to witness. He's not going to do more miracles. Uh, but he is going to specifically indulge his disciples in this personal intimacy of the upper room discourse before he dies on the cross. So this is going to be a transition chapter that gets us to uh, the upper room discourse with Jesus and his disciples. So if you'll look with me, uh, John 11, 45 through 57. <coughs> Melanie, if you'll read uh, 45 through 57. <coughs> Austin, if you'll read uh, 12, 1 through 11. Uh, Pat, if you'll read uh, 12 through uh, 19. And then uh, Jeff, if you don't mind reading uh, 20 through 26. And Valerie, if you'll read 27 through 36. Uh, and then I'll finish us off. Let's just read this uh, chapter in a, in a quarter. Uh, and then we will uh, commence to talking about it. So, Melanie, if you'll start us and we'll get going. <clears throat> Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary. But although he had done so many signs before them, they didn't believe him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. Because Isaiah had said he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes and lest they should understand with their hearts in turn that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory 
and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they didn't confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I've come as a light into the world, the world... Whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I don't judge him. But I, for I did not come to the world, but to save to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and doesn't receive my words, he that which judges him, the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that His command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So we have this great transition after the seventh sign and after the fifth I am of Christ. Basically, that was the turning point. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. This enraged the Pharisees. It enraged the Sadducees. It enraged the believers that this man claimed to be God. He demonstrated that he was God, and it made them mad, and they wanted to kill him. So from here on out, we're going to see this plot from uh, from the rest of this chapter until Jesus is actually crucified, this plot to kill him. And we see the plot... Uh, uh, in verse 45, uh, they, they, uh, verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered and said, What shall we do? This man works many signs. And so uh, there's a plot to kill him. And then we see a plot to kill Lazarus in, in chapter 12, verse 10. The chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also because Lazarus had been raised from the dead. And because of this raising of the dead, this seventh most climactic, most dramatic sign, many believed that Jesus was who he says he was, the God, God the Son of God. And many believed on him because of the resurrection of Lazarus. So there's a plot to kill Jesus. Now the motivation, we see the wickedness of this plot. What is the motivation? What do these people admit to their reason for killing Jesus? Is it because of blasphemy? No, uh, not in this case. But what is the reason why? Look at verse 48. Why do the Pharisees, the Sadducees, why do they gather together this group of, uh, it's, uh, it's called the Supreme Court of the Jew, of Jewelry. It's, uh, it's the, it's the former high priests and high priests called the Sanhedrin. There's 70 of them. They get together and plot this course to destroy Jesus. And what is their motivation in verse 48? What is the reality of why they want to kill Jesus? They don't want people to believe that the main thing is what? They're selfish. They don't want to lose their power. Isn't that the, the typical reason politicians are what politicians are? They want to have their authority over people. You can boil all this down between the demos and the Republicans going on in this mess of this week, and you can boil it down to hatred. You can boil it down to whatever you want to boil it down to. But the bottom line is they want power, and they want to rule with absolute power, and they want to keep the people down with their power. So they'll do whatever they got to do. However, they got to do it to retain this. And so the Pharisees, and there's nothing new under the sun. This is not a new sin. This is not something that's original. 
to the leaders of the Jewish people, but they are selfish and they want to keep their power. And they're afraid that if, if, if Jesus becomes this king that they misunderstand him to be, that he's going to start ruling over and he's going to bring problems within the Roman um, uh, hierarchy, the, the, the leadership of the Romans, and there's no telling what's going to happen to them. So it's selfish. They don't care about the people. They don't care about anything but themselves. And so they'll do anything to destroy Jesus. They hate Jesus. They hate his light. They hate who he is. They hate who he claims to be. They're like anybody else in darkness. They love their darkness. So they are desirous to get rid of Jesus and to kill him and to kill him, which is, of course, the foreordained plan of God. It was always in, in, uh, set up before the foundation of the world. So we see this ambition. So then we see this prophecy of Caiaphas. And uh, I have worked on spelling this unusual name, Caiaphas. He is the high priest. The way it worked, uh, they were under the authority of the Romans, of course, of Caesar and uh, under the authority of the Roman structure, but they, the Jews, were allowed a certain bit of autonomy. They were able, they were able to worship freely and they had certain rights and they weren't completely subjected to the Romans. So the, so the, uh, is custom within the nation of Israel. They had a high priest. He's the highest, uh, priest. He's supposed to be the most knowledgeable priest. He is the authority. Uh, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin report to him. He is one of the leaders in the community to uphold the law. So Caiaphas is the high priest. And Caiaphas has this dream. Uh, and he, he, he's not a dream, but he, he has this prophecy. And this prophecy is given to him, even though he is wicked, even though he's an evil, he's a non-believer. God gives him this prophecy, and this prophecy accomplishes two things. The first thing this prophecy, if you look at verse 49, Caiaphas is a high priest. He said, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider this as expedient for that one man should die for the people. So he has this he prophesies and the first thing he says is one man shall die for the people now he had a murderous intent he was amongst the ilk that wanted to get rid of Jesus because of his threatened to loss of power and prestige and because of selfishness. He has this, he is given this prophecy of God and it's unbeknownst to him where it comes from. He probably takes full credit for it, but he says, you don't know what you're talking about. One man shall die for the people. He is, has a murderous intent. This prophecy he was given there is a murderous intent to it in his mind. And he thinks we can solve this problem about Jesus. We can kill him and we can therefore, uh, we can, uh, mollify the Romans threats against us. We can pacify them. They're going to be satisfied. This uprising that Jesus is bringing, this, the whole world coming after Jesus and this, the potential trouble this Messiah is going to bring. We can solve all this problem in one fell swoop. We can kill Jesus. So he has a murderous intent, but what his intent was is not what God's intent is. But what is God's intent with this prophecy that one man shall die for the people. There are several things we see in this prophecy that is unbeknownst to Caiaphas, but rings out to us. 
So this phrase, one man shall die for the people, what is God's intent of that? What is salvation. This is all about salvation. This is about substitution and atonement that this prophecy fulfills that Jesus is going to be the man. He's God and he's man, and he is going to die for the people. His substitutionary death brings atonement to those who believe. And so, although he unwittingly said this prophecy, he did it with this intent. Reminds us of Genesis, where Joseph says, You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. So Caiaphas under the sovereign work, act of God, he pronounces this for his own murderous intent, but the intent is to show and to be fulfilled in Christ that he is indeed the man who is dying for the sins of his people. And so we see Caiaphas doing that. And because uh, we see this, verse 51, he didn't say this on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also to gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So not only did it talk about substitutionary atonement, but it's also going to talk about salvation, as Dan mentioned, to the Jews and to the Gentiles. This is going to be a fulfillment of prophecy. Fulfillment. That God would one day bring about the salvation of the Jew and the Gentiles. And so Jesus is that man, that God-man, who substitution substitutes his perfect sinless life for the sins of people. So understand that prophecy? Unwittingly given with bad intent, but God takes the bad intent in His sovereignty and He describes salvation and its basic premises. Any questions about Caiaphas' prophecy? And then... Yes. Absolutely. He sets up kings and he takes them down. And you can apply this to everything going on in this world today. God is still sovereign. We know that uh, our president is in, in office as God's person. I've always said this. He's God's man. He's not a godly man, but he's there for a purpose. And all these things that are happening will occur. And it don't matter how or how it's voted or what happens. We can be Rest assured that God's going to be glorified and His purposes are going to be accomplished. So don't fret. Those of you who are intently watching all the procedures and impeachment procedures and will be nervously chewing your fingernails, God is in control of this. And we are have peace about this. And no matter what happens, it's not an accident. And He is bringing His Son's Return closer and closer and closer. And we can rejoice in that. So God's purposes will be accomplished. We see that Lazarus was also targeted because he was raised from the dead and because of belief in Christ. So we see this. Now we see this next topic I want to look at real quickly. The anointing that Mary gives to Jesus. The anointing of Jesus by Mary. And I want to look at the reaction of a believer 
and the reaction of an unbeliever. Mary gives all that she has for her precious Lord and Savior Jesus. Remember we talked about Mary and Martha and how they were two different people? And we read about them in Luke. Martha was a busy person. She was a doer. She thought she had to be busy serving the Lord. And she got frustrated with Mary because Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, participating in Jesus' words. And Jesus says, Martha, you're worried about a lot of things. Mary has chosen the best thing. So we see this precious saint demonstrating that she's been at Jesus' feet, that she's listened to his words. She has a great love for him. And so she pours out her most valuable possession, a possession undoubtedly uh, uh, that has been saved up for. Maybe it had been inherited. She saved it for this special occasion to anoint her Savior for burial. And so this act, Jesus said, will be remembered from here on out that she has anointed me for burial and she has given unselfishly out of love. And one of my commentators said she perceived in uh, 3C, she perceived the preciousness that Jesus was with them. And she however limited her knowledge of what was going to happen. She was like the disciples. She didn't understand perhaps the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ as much as she should. She had a small grain of seed faith. But she anticipated this, and so she she basically embalmed Jesus. The Jews didn't embalm, so she basically prepared his body for burial in this uh, gift of uh, what is it? What is spikenard, which was preparatory for burial in those days. So uh, she anointed Jesus. She did it out of love. And Jesus says, you let her alone. She has kept this for my burial. Now, the unbeliever is typified by, we see the unbeliever. And we see him typified by Judas Iscariot. Now, this is the only of the four Gospels, this is the only place it actually talks about Judas Iscariot this way. Judas, look at this indignation. Look at this fake superficiality. He's so incensed. He said, one of his disciples who would betray him said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for three? A denarii was a day's wage. 300. This is a year's worth of ointment that you're wasting on Jesus. He had no care for Jesus. He had no love for Jesus. He had no sense of the preciousness of who Jesus was. And so he had this fake outrage that we could have used this to help poor people. Can you just hear him? And then I love what John says. Judas didn't care about poor people. Because he was a thief. And he used to steal the money because he was the treasurer. Isn't that amazing that God would entrust that task with Judas, knowing Judas would be a thief the whole time? And the other Gospels say the disciples reacted like this. But John gives us this specific from the general to the specific, and says it's Judas that did it. And he alone tells us that Judas is a thief. 
and he is an unbeliever. I've had arguments with people saying that Judas was originally a, a follower, but then Satan entered him, and he was deceived, and then he betrayed Jesus, and then afterward he was remorseful and he hung himself. That's not true. He's always an unbeliever. Jesus knew he was an unbeliever when he pointed him to the office. He was appointed to the office to fulfill prophecy. If you want to look at that prophecy that Judas Iscariot fulfills, uh, let's look at that at a couple of verses. First of all, we see Peter's preaching. Look at Acts chapter 1. If you think that Judas was a good guy, he was a believer, and then he got carried away by the money and and all that stuff, and then afterwards he repented and was sorry. That's not who Judas was. Judas was an unbeliever. He was he was sovereignly picked in the, in the, in the uh, to be an apostle for the purposes of God. It wasn't a uh, it w- Jesus wasn't surprised when he was betrayed by Judas, and Judas's repentance and hanging himself was because he got caught. It wasn't because he was sorry for what he did. Judas is a was a, is a reprobate. He always was, and he stayed that way all his life. Let's look at Peter preaching about him as the Holy Spirit's come upon Peter. Let's look what Peter says about Judas Iscariot. Uh, That would be Acts chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, For these are not, they accuse them of being drunk when the Holy Spirit comes on them. It says, uh, have I got the right verse? 1.15, For this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters. Now this is not where I want to be. I want to be... I hate when I do this. It's two. Let's see where it is. As he's preaching, it is in here. Let me... I'm in two. There, there. I'm in two myself. Here we go. Men and brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. Now, this Scripture is fulfilled uh, in Psalms. And the scripture is fulfilled uh, in two places in Psalms: Psalm 69:25 and Psalm 109:8. And he quotes this: uh, "Men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us." That's a verse, he was of us, but if he would have been really of us, he would have stayed with us. But he left that it might be demonstrated that he really wasn't of us. That's from 1 John. He was numbered with us. He obtained a part in the ministry. Now, this man purchased a field with the wages of his iniquity. He fell headlong. He burst open in the middle, and all of his intestines were gushed out. And it became to all those who were dwelling in Jerusalem. The field was called in the old language, Akil Dama, that is, field of blood, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. That's Psalm 69.25. And let another take his office. That's 109.8. So that's a prophecy of of Judas, that Judas would be the betrayer. He's the one that uh, dipped his hands with Jesus in the cup when he took the cup during the uh, upper discourse. And Jesus said, what you're going to do, you go do. And then it says it's night. And so Judas goes out and betrays Christ for 30 shekels of silver, which is prophesied in Jeremiah. 
that he would be sold out for 30 shekels. Of, excuse me, it's prophesied in Zechariah that he would be sold out for 30 shekels of silver. So we, the price of a slave. So we, we've talked about that. So Judas Iscariot is a hater of Christ. He never was a believer. And he is a, a, a great antithesis of the action of Mary toward Jesus. Now what does it mean... What does Jesus mean and when, what doesn't He mean when He says, the poor you're always going to have with you, but me you don't have always? What does He mean and what doesn't He mean? What does He mean? Pretty self-explanatory. You're always going to have poor people. I am not going to be with you. I'm about to die. I'm about to be resurrected and I'm about to send to heaven so the light is no longer going to be in your presence. Literally. But when he says the poor you're always going to have with you, is he saying we shouldn't care about the poor? Is he saying uh, there's no way for the poor ever to be get out of the way they are? They're being poor. Is there no way for them in advance? What does that mean, doesn't mean, and how do we react to that verse? Any thoughts about that? Prioritizing. Jesus is a priority. Mary understood that. And we should have a priority. Jesus first. Now, the, uh, the fact that Jesus is our priority should cause us to have a great love for poor people. If you want to dovetail this verse, put Psalm 41 on it. And let me tell you our attitude toward poor people and what it should be. Jesus is not saying don't care for the poor people. Jesus is not saying you don't love people. You don't share with people. You don't try to lift people up out of poverty. I mean, one of the ways that the works that we're judged is how we care about those who are in need, those who are in prison, those who are in the hospital, those who are hungry. That's going to be part of how we're judged, our works and our motives. But look at Psalm 41. Blessed is he who considers the poor. Look at this great promise. The Lord will deliver him who considers the poor in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him who considers the poor and keep him alive and he will be blessed. And if you consider the poor, the Lord will deliver you, not deliver you to the will of your enemies. And the Lord will strengthen him when he is sick. And the Lord will sustain him when he is on his sickbed. So it's very important we care for poor people. And we should love poor people. And if we love poor people and care for poor people, there's a promise here that God will keep us and preserve us through the sickness, right? Not that we won't get sick, but He will preserve us. Yes, sir. Absolutely. He doesn't have to be economics. It's Carolyn's liver disease. It's 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 Sheila's knee. It's everybody in here's infirmities at whatever time they are. It's just life. And we're to care for people and we're to love people and God will provide us 
and provide a way through it. Any comments or questions about the anointing of Mary? Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, but there is a difference between Mary's attitude and Judas Iscariot's attitude. Jesus is speaking to believers, Mary, unbelievers, Judas Iscariot, and later he's going to be talking to a mixed group of people. And now, so we understand the anointing of Mary remembered by us today as an act of unselfish love for her preciousness and her thoughts and her love for her Savior, Jesus, who had raised her brother Lazarus from the dead and who had sat in his feet and understood that he was a priority and she put all of her attention on him. Comments, questions about her? Triumphal entry. Don't have a lot to write up here. It's already in the notes. The triumphal entry is a great fulfillment of prophecy. A great fulfillment of prophecy. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the day appointed by Him. Remember when we studied in Daniel? And Daniel was given a prophecy, and it's called the 70 Weeks Prophecy. And we studied that prophecy for every word of that prophecy. And one of the prophecies that Daniel gave, if you'll run over to to Daniel 9, God specifically told Daniel that the day that Christ would come into Jerusalem and the day that Christ would be cut off, was most specifically numbered in the exact day was already written down. And we looked at that, we extrapolated that, and we came up with this great number of 173,880 days. And you can, uh, we talked about the myriad of ways when it starts, when it ended, but we came up with a conclusion, a consensus, that the day that Jesus was going to come into Jerusalem was predetermined. Daniel saw it in a vision. God gave it to him. But we see this in Daniel 9, verse 25, 9.25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and sixty. 62 weeks, 69, with the streets shall be built again, the wall. In verse 26, and after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. So, we see this prophecy, 483 years. We talked about all the number of days. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the exact day when the lambs are prepared for the Passover. He's the lamb that's going to be slain. He comes into Jerusalem. And so Jesus, in all this triumph and all these hosanna and the waving of the palm trees, is a fulfillment of Scripture. And we see that Scripture fulfilled. Uh, let's look at Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Psalms 113 through 118 are called the Halal Psalms. Psalm 113 through 118, they're called the Halal Psalms. And these Psalms were quoted by the Jews during, during Passover. And the 118th Psalm is the last Halal Psalm, uh, last Passover Psalm, and lots of folks uh, see this, and I see this, and a lot of us see this is a fulfillment of prophecy. So Jesus fulfills prophecy. Look at this Halal Psalm, and uh, let's see this uh, 
let's just start at verse uh, 19. This is, this is quoted, this is sung, this is read by the Jews on Passover. Jesus comes in on Passover, He's the Lamb, and so we see this halal, and we see Jesus is coming in to the streets of Jerusalem as a fulfillment. Let me just get back to the context. Open to me the gates of righteousness. Jesus is the gate. He's the door. We're talking, all talking about Jesus. And I will go through them. This is Jesus in His death. And I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you. You've answered me. You've become my salvation. The stone, Jesus, which the builders rejected. This is the crowd. This is the unbelievers. This is the, He's become the chief cornerstone. It's a marvelous thing. It's the Lord's doing. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice. That word rejoice is Hosanna. Jesus saves. Hallelujah. Save now, I pray, O Lord. I pray, send prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the people were saying, remember? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. We've blessed you. God is the Lord and He's given us light. Jesus is the light. Bind the sacrifice to the cords of the altar. That's a picture of what Abraham did when he bound Isaac, when he was going to kill Isaac as a foreshadow of Christ. So here Christ comes in. He is that fulfillment of this foreshadow. He comes in. He is the sacrifice that is bound to the altar. He comes in. Psalm 118, the Salil Psalm, and he fulfills all this righteousness. Look at Zechariah 9, 9. We covered this in great detail back whenever it was, back in uh, January, I think. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, the coat, the coat, the foal of a donkey. Look at... uh, Look at Isaiah 49, if you look at this fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. Isaiah 40, verse 9. As Jesus came to Jerusalem, we see that He gets a donkey, and He's riding on this donkey. Isaiah 49, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get into the high mountains, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings. Lift up the voice with strength. Lift it up. Don't be afraid to the cities of Judah. Behold your God. So here he comes. Why did he ride on a donkey? Not only to fulfill prophecy, but why did he ride on a donkey? How did kings usually come in? White horse steeds. And so, if Jesus would have come to be the political leader that the Jews expected Him to be, if He was going to come in to conquer Rome and to, and to solve all of the problems that people had, He would have came in on a white horse, triumphant, taking over. But Jesus came on a donkey, which typified and symbolizes what? Humility. He came the first time to die. He came the first time to be a sacrifice for sins. Now, when Jesus comes back the second time, friends, it ain't going to be on the donkey. It's going to be on a white horse, and it's going to be the King of Kings coming, and He will come in judgment, and He will destroy everything that opposes Him by the word of His mouth. 
two-edged sword. That time is very, very soon. So he came the first time humble on a donkey to fulfill Scripture, to, to show his humility as a suffering servant as he came to die as a sacrificial lamb. The second time, it's going to be a different story. The triumphal... Yes, sir. It is still to fulfill Scripture. Absolutely. Yes, sir. I'm missing something here. There's something that's confusing. Okay. You know, Caiaphas wanted to retain his power. Yes. To retain his power, he wanted Rome to continue to be over them. But the prevailing thought at that time was the Messiah would come in to free them from the Roman tyranny. Yes. Yes. The Jews misunderstood the purpose of Jesus' coming. They thought He was coming like you said. Caiaphas thought that. Everybody thought that. I'm missing why you're you're confused. Because it's all about power. I mean, that Caiaphas thought that he was getting his power from Rome. Right. Yes. I think that we can leave it at there's a big paradox there. There is. One thought is it's like somebody thinks liberty is from the government and some people think liberty is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a from God. And those of us who think that are more conservative and those who think the other way want the government to be in control and have more and more power. Right, Fran? <laughs> Got a smile out of her back there, Right. There's always going to be this dichotomy of views, right? Uh, I, I, I agree with you 100%. Caiaphas thought his power came from who he was. The people, uh, they wanted to be freedom, freed from that. So, yes, there is a uh, confusion. And uh, so we see Jesus coming in. We see Hosanna. They sing, Blessings comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this, this triumphal entry, it seems like a magnificent celebration of Jesus coming. But is it? Superficially, it is. The people are fired up. People come in. They're coming in for Passover, which is a requirement. They're fired up. But but what does Jesus think about this? Let's look at Luke 19. What is the heart of Jesus as He comes in, as He... Uh, uh, it's, this is not recorded in John, but it's recorded in Luke. Look at Jesus knows the hearts of people. And as he sums up this unit, as he sum, before he goes to his believers in the upper room, Jesus knows that all this enthusiasm and hype is a misfocused hype. It's based upon seeing miracles. It's based upon they think He's going to set up a... They're not seeking God. They're not seeking His kingdom. It's all superficial and it's all what can you do for me and it's all political. Jesus knows the heart of these people. Although that it fulfills prophecy, look what Jesus says, Luke 19:41. The triumphal entry has come in. Look at verse, I like 39. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, If I tell them to keep quiet, the stones are going to cry out. 
But look what he says. Now, as he drew near the city, he what? He wept over it. If you had known, even you, especially this, your day. This is the day prophesied by Daniel. This is the day prophesied by Scripture when I would come in. But he says, if you had knew the things that make for your peace, I came to die for the sins of the people. But I have been rejected. I have not been believed. And so he weeps over this misplaced enthusiasm because it's wrong. It's not contrite humility. Thank you for dying for us, Jesus. It is a... It's totally opposite of the way it should have. So Jesus weeps over this. He says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And then he says, he goes on and prophesies, which is going to happen 40 years later. Four days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you, your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave you in the one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You're continually rebelling against me. And so he says, in a short time, and we know in A.D. 70, Nero came in and burned the temple to the ground. There wasn't one stone left upon another. And Jerusalem was ransacked. Millions were killed in Jerusalem. They were fed to the lions. They were burned at the stakes. As a consequence of continued rebellion and reprobation against God. So it is a triumphal entry. It fulfilled Scripture. But Jesus knew all of the hearts of people. And He knew that even amongst this enthusiasm, right? Because even His disciples ran. The only ones that were at the foot of that cross was Mary and John. And was there one more? There weren't many. Forgive me if I've forgotten. Everybody else was scattered. Peter denied him. Everybody else ran. The the shepherd's sheep were scattered. Maybe two Marys and John. That's probably right because he told he told Mary, "Behold your son, behold your mother." He took care of his mother at the cross. So everybody ran. Everybody scattered. They denied him. So this triumphal entry, bunch of passion, enthusiasm. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew the hearts of people, and he cried over the city because they rejected him as their Messiah. So the triumphal entry. Uh, we see that. Everybody understand that? I hope I've explained it uh, uh, decently enough. Uh, look at verse 16. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about Him, that they had done these things to Him. What changes? After Jesus is glorified, why did they remember all of a sudden the words that Jesus said? And why does it click in their brains? What happens? The Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is going to tell them, and look at John fourteen twenty six. as we get into this. Jesus says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance of everything I've said to you. So the disciples, without the Holy Spirit giving them aid and, and, and enlightening their eyes, they believe, but it's... It needs to mature the faith, and they don't really understand this triumphal entry. It's all confusing. Like Dan's, everything's confusing. 
But after the fact, the Holy Spirit enlightens the truth and the disciples remember, aha, he said he would do this. We remember from Scripture that he was going to get on this cult. We remember from Scripture all these things and he fulfilled them all. And it dawns on them as the Holy Spirit enlightens their eyes. So we see that, the triumphal entry. Any comments or questions about that? Then lastly, I'm obviously not going to have time to finish this. What Jesus does now is he sums up his ministry in 30 verses. Everything he's done, everything he's accomplished, everything the prologue predicted he would do, he sort of sums it all up, his ministry in 30 verses. And he sums it up to three different groups of people, as we've talked about this. He sums it up to the Greeks. It starts out with the Greeks. The Greeks, they're called God-fearers, probably not believers, but they're enthusiastically at least receptive to these new things. You know, the Greeks were big on learning, and and, uh, so they were enthusiastic about this new. They were probably Judaizers. They'd probably been, uh, been partially... Uh, brought into to the faith of the Jews, but they weren't circumcised, but they did, or they were allowed to go into the synagogues. So we got this people. So Jesus is going to sum up everything to these, to this group of people, uh, the Greeks, uh, and that's going to be in verse 20. And then he's going to sum up, sum up all of his uh, teaching to the unbelievers, which is going to be, uh, instead of 30, I've got 27 in this in my notes, that should be 37 through 41. This is going to be the ones that, if you're changing that in your notes, I think I might have changed it in your copy, but I didn't mind. He's going to be summing up his teaching to unbelievers, the one Isaiah had said in, in Isaiah 6. Remember when Isaiah saw Jesus high and lifted up? This theophany and his robes filled the temple and he fell on his face and he says, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And he takes the altar from the tongs from the altar and puts it on his lips, which is a picture of purification. And he says, and God says, who are we going to send? And Isaiah said, send me. And he said, what do you want me to tell them? And he said, tell them that there's going to, their hearts are going to be hardened and their eyes are going to be closed and their ears are going to be stopped. That was, the, that was what God wanted Isaiah to tell the people. And here we have this fulfilled. Verse 40, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. That's a literal fulfillment of Isaiah 6. When Jesus meets with him as a Christophany and he, he falls before him and he's told what he's got to do as a prophet. And so we see Jesus' mixed message to this mixed group, not a mixed message, but his final message. It's to Greeks, it's to unbelievers, and thankfully in verse 42 there's many who believe in him. So this message is going to be to believers, unbelievers, and those who are superficial curious for various reasons. And so he's going to sum up his teaching to these people as he bridges this gap in the last night of his life in the upper room discourse. Uh, Let me give you a bonus and let us stop here. Bring this with you next week and we will finish this 
as he finishes, he sums up his teaching, and then we were going to go into the upper room discourse. My favorite five chapters in Scripture. And, uh, 13, 14, 15. And, uh, we will, uh, spend a lot of time on them. Any comments or questions? And we will finish up his final message, and then we'll go into the upper room discord, discourse. And you get out a little early today. Anybody want to close us in prayer? Any comments or questions about this?